This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Darwin, and thank you to everybody for inviting me here. Is this too loud? Am I too loud right now? Oh, I am loud. No, it's great. It's, great. it's not too loud? No, no. I might get into my teacher voice and then just warn me. Okay, uh, so thank you for that introduction, Darwin. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Yasmin Mohammed. Um, and if you're on Facebook or Twitter, then you can find me at Confessions X Moo. And this is, uh, I chose this picture to start off the presentation today because this is the photograph that um, it really just embodies everything about what I do. This, this really is the reason why I do any of this work that I'm doing for this activism. This is a picture of a Syrian woman who is leaving ISIS territory and she's removing her hijab, her niqab, and also her abaya, which is the black cloak that they have to wear and underneath she's got this beautiful colorful dress on and I just love the symbolism of that and you can see her mouth is in a huge smile and if you watch the video she's actually doing that sound that I can't do if anybody here you know that (laughs) so she that's the sound that they make when they're like super excited and happy um and her husband is so happy for her, and her son is going to get to see his mom all free and happy. And so I just, I love this photo. And that's basically me, but my, I don't have a picture to show it quite so pronounced, but this was my journey as well. Um, and I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. So this is the mosque that probably all of you see driving along the highway. Uh, This is the mosque that I went to school in for grades um, four, five, six, and seven. Uh, These big ornate doors here with the calligraphy across the top and everything. This is the men's entrance. So I've never actually entered from these doors. The women's entrance was in the back off the kitchen next to the dumpsters. That's how I would go in. Um, Women were actually not allowed to go in through these doors. And we had like a makeshift school in there that was, uh, it was basically like homeschooling. It was parents of other Muslim kids. And you know, if they knew how to add, they'd be like, great, you're teaching math. And somebody else knows how to, you know, just the basics of anything, and then they would just get them to teach us. So it wasn't really about curriculum or education. It was just about keeping us away from the infidels so that we would grow up, you know, pure and not getting any of the bad ideas from the outside world. So this is a, it's a stressor for a lot of um, conservative Muslims like my family was growing up in Canada because they're always worried that their kids are going to become atheists. <laughs> this is a picture of me when I was going to high school with my friend Lisa back there. <laughs> so by now, I had already been wearing the hijab for years. Uh, but this was me starting high school at Semiamu Secondary in White Rock. Um, 
And so I was obviously the only girl in the school wearing a hijab. And um, it, uh, you'll notice there's a bit of a unibrow going on there. It's against Islam to even pluck your eyebrows. So I think that people are really surprised sometimes to find out um, exactly how restrictive Islam is. Like it really impacts every single aspect of your life. So there I was, conservative Muslim girl, um, going to a regular public school and sort of leading this conflicted life, constant confliction. I was very happy when I was at school. I loved my friends. I loved being there. And then I would come home and get told that the non-believers should be killed and that I can't be friends with them. And so what I was being taught at home didn't match what I was feeling around my friends and feeling around school. Um, so I was the black sheep of the family. There was, there was always constant struggle inside of me. I was always feeling guilty. I was always full of self-hate and always mad at myself that I couldn't conform to the way that my family wanted me to. Um, and I thought I was going to burn in hell for it. So it was very scary. So I'm going to try and quickly tell you what life was like for me for those you know almost 25 years of being a Muslim and I want to tell you in about three minutes so I've got a little video for you Opportunity to think. You're trained to just follow up. Do as you're told. Don't ask why. Get in line with the rest of your life. Humility and Like a school of fish, it's instinctual. That's the way it is. That's the way the brainwashing goes. Like a soldier trained to take orders and react. Thinking is deadly. Questioning is punished. It is much more true for women than it is for men. Under Islam, a woman's sense of agency is non-existent. Her individuality is completely erased, or rather, never given an opportunity to flourish in the first place. Sometimes, like it was for me, the statement is both literal as well as figurative. My entire being was dampened by a black shroud covered from head to toe, without even my eyes connecting with the outside world. I thought around other humans almost like a ghost. I could see them, but they couldn't see me. I was invisible. My humanity was completely eradicated. I wasn't Yasmin. I was a faceless figure shrouded in black. My wants, needs, interests, desires, preferences, were never even considered, least of all by me. I didn't know that there was such thing as choice. I'd never made a decision. I just did as I was told. I was miserable. 
I'm using the rest of the papers and I couldn't I move them all with the fresh. Why do I yearn to escape and vote? Wasn't this the path to heaven? Any other direction was hell. Why wasn't I strong enough to fight the devil yearning to imagine a life where I could swim in different waters? This land is ingenious in its foes. Aspects of its tactics can be found in Mormonism, Scientologists, and Jehovah's Witnesses. This land is the only religion that combines all the different ensnaring elements into one and then turns up the intensity tenfold. Science hold on your body, mind, and spirit is such that almost 15 years after denouncing the religion, I'm still discovering the suffering from violent conditioning of my mind. I don't think I'll ever be truly free. I will only be able to free my body. But I have not failed. My daughters are free. My daughters will never be able to relate to or understand any of this world. They will listen with dry eyes, unable to fathom that existence. So, even if I have to take this indoctrination with me to the grave, I don't mind. I'm happy to take it with me six feet under, far away from my daughters. But it can't hurt anyone else from my bloodline. They're all be free to spin in any direction they choose. So as Darwin mentioned, I brought a cloth here for show and tell. This is the, the kind that I wore when I was married to that man. Um, that's Assam Marzouk. He's a member of Al-Qaeda that was sent here to help with 9-11. Um, so as you saw before, I used to just wear the hijab. And then I had to start wearing this. Uh, so what you do is you tie it like that. And then if you're in the company of people that you can trust, then you can lift this up and your eyes can show. Um, but this wasn't allowed. I had to be like this. So I'll pass this around. Uh, one common thing that I hear all the time is it's their culture, they're okay with it. They don't mind. So Muslims are just human beings, just like all of us, right? So I'd like you all, men and women, when this comes around, put it on your face and let me know if you feel comfortable with it. Let me know if you're okay with it and it's totally fine because it's culture and we have to accept that. So, this was taken from an article I was asked by an interviewer. You mentioned that you were forced to marry a member of Al-Qaeda, and on your website you say that this particular one was bailed out of prison by Osama bin Laden himself. Can you give us an idea of what day-to-day -day life was like being married to an Al-Qaeda fighter? And I said, it's been almost 20 years since I escaped 
and that question instantly put a knot in my stomach and filled my eyes with tears. I don't know how to accurately describe this to you. I suppose the best analogy I can think of is suffocation. Have you ever had that moment of panic because you swallowed something the wrong way and now you're coughing and you can't catch your breath? Expand that moment into years and that's probably the best way I can explain it. This is a photograph of him behind bars in Egypt. Uh, CESIS contacted me to confirm that that was him and I was very happy to say yes, it's him. Um, so he was sentenced to 15 years hard labor, but his sentence is up, and I don't know if he's, if he survived, I don't know if he's out, I don't know if he's still in, I don't know anything about his current situation, which is part of the reason why I was very nervous about speaking up and doing what I'm doing now, uh, because I, you know, have a daughter with him, and I needed to make sure that my daughter was safe. Um, I've changed her name, first and last name, and he hasn't seen her since she was a baby, so hopefully he wouldn't be able to find her. And she has moved out because she's 20 years old now, so even if they do find me, they won't find her. So these are all sort of things that I thought about before I started to become vocal. Um, but as Armin and I were discussing right before this all started, when I first began my activism, I was anonymous. But I was getting contacted by people from Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Iran and Pakistan and all over the world. And for me to speak up, it, even with this shady guy never knowing where he is or if he's gonna find me, I'm still in a better position to speak up than people in the Muslim world. So when I saw all of these people contacting me and saying, oh, thank you for speaking on our behalf, thank you for getting our voices out because we can't say anything, then I started to feel like it was my responsibility to take this more seriously and to put my face and name out there and to, to, really, believe that, to really be the voice for the voiceless. And I know that Armin and my other secular jihadists agree, and that's that's kind of the position that we're in right now. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Raf Badawi. His wife, Ansa Haider, is Canadian, and their three children are here. And Raf is in prison in Saudi Arabia for just being a liberal thinker. He didn't even say anything against Islam. Um, and of course, there's the Bangladeshi bloggers that were hacked to death and left in the streets. And um, you know, in Pakistan, just recently, there was a, a hashtag for a, an atheist that the hashtag was hang Nizam Ayazi, I think was his name, and they were saying, it, it went viral because they all wanted him dead because he was an, an open atheist. So when you compare my situation as bad as it was, I just needed to get out of my family. Once I got away from my family, I'm very, very lucky to be in a wonderful secular free country and I could get student loans and I could go to university and I could go on with my life but that's not the case for millions and millions of people who are like us, agnostics, non-believers, or even just non-Muslims. So the same for Christians as well, as you might have heard what happened this morning in Egypt. Um, so as long as you're, if you're not Muslim and you're in a Muslim majority country, you're not safe. So I, I feel like I need to speak up for all of them. 
So, as I mentioned in my video, um, I eventually got out of Islam, as you guys probably guessed that by now. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, so like I mentioned, I got, I got away from my family and I started going to university and I was getting away from my family because of all of the abuse that was going on there and it was super conservative, but I still identified as a Muslim. I didn't think that the problem was Islam, I thought the problem was my family. But then I took a course at university called the History of Religions. <laughs> and that's, was that your experience too? I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. And then that's when I discovered that this divine book that was supposed to be the word of God verbatim is just a you know a bunch of plagiarized stories from other religions and from you know pagan stories before that and and it was all a farce. And so that's that was my first sort of like the first thread being pulled out of the sweater before it before it all unraveled. And that's also when I discovered that everything that had happened to me in my life that I thought was my family, all of it traced back to the religion. So my mother was a student at Azhar University, which is one of the most prestigious Islamic universities in Egypt, well, in general, but it is in Egypt. Um, and so she was very, she was very strict, she's very careful, she's very, um, like she, she did not mess around. If it's if it the, if the hadith said this or if the Quran said this, then that's what we're gonna do. So, um, you know, she would sit me down and make her promise, make me promise to her that if the caliphate rose, I would be willing to chop off the heads of my friends. And she would, my very best friend. Uh, my very best friend Tiffany was the person that she always chose. Tiffany's gone now, otherwise she'd be here. Um, and she'd make me promise that I would chop off Tiffany's head if the time came. So when there's 1.6 billion people all following this same book, not everybody's going to take it as literally as my mom did. But a certain percentage will, as you know, because you all read the news and you all have see what's going on all across the world. So um, even though this is my specific story, it's not unique. This is a story that's familiar to many millions of people uh, across the globe. So that's when I decided to get into activism. If you could open up my website for me, please. Confessionsofanexmuslim.com. And I decided to reach out to those people because I felt really alone growing up and I felt like I was a crazy person and I felt like what is wrong with me that I can't just join in with everybody else. Um, perfect, thank you. And so I wanted to reach out to other people that are feeling that same sense of loneliness that I felt when I was growing up. 
And you know, had social media been around when I was leaving Islam, I'm sure I could have saved so much money on therapy. <laughs> I'm really I'm so grateful for it now, and I can reach people in countries that they can't even be, they can only be honest in their own minds, like they can't speak out to anybody. Uh, in the third episode of our, our podcast, we speak with Rana, who is a uh, Saudi Arabian girl, and she was an atheist for five years in Saudi Arabia, and she couldn't tell a soul because she would be killed if she tells the wrong person. So just that, like, if you can just imagine having that, and then and then having to, like, put a hijab on and go pray with everybody. And, and you know, Raif Badawi was telling Ali Rizvi, who is one of our co-hosts, he said, I don't even care about being in prison. I hate that they make me pray. I hate that I have to read the Quran. Like, it's just, it's, it's just so invasive, you know? Um, so this is my, my website here, and these are the, the different things that I've been up to. And if you, that's Majid Nawaz, which people, <laughs> yeah. he is a, uh, he's a reformer. He's a Muslim reformer, and he's a man that I respect immensely. And people find it strange that I have such respect for Majid. In fact, I'm wearing Solidarity t-shirt in my um, profile picture, and I support Quilliam. I myself do not believe in reforming Islam because I'm an atheist and I believe that all of that is fairy tales. Um, but I will definitely support somebody who is working towards secularism and human rights and um, you know, equality for the LGBT community and all of the things that Majid is working towards, we agree on those values. So I'm, there's my solidarity t-shirt. So I'm, I'm very happy to to support him and work with him. So when I first left Islam, everything was really exciting. The humanist community was so inviting, and I felt like, oh my gosh, this is what John Lennon was singing about in Imagine. Like, <laughs> this is it, <laughs> you know? And I was so excited, I was so happy, and for a long time I didn't mention that I used to be Muslim. I would just, I was just a humanist, I'm agnostic. I kind of went through this long process. Um, but then when I started to mention that I used to be Muslim, that's when things turned ugly. And things turned ugly, of course, because as we all know, criticizing someone's religion is gross and racist. I hope you're all familiar with with what this is referring to. So, okay. so Ben Affleck was on Bill Maher, and Sam Harris was also a guest that same day. And Sam Harris and Bill Maher were talking about all of the problems in Islam, and Sam Harris had that famous quote where he said, Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. And that man just lost it. He got so angry, he was enraged, he was like flailing and like just yelling, and he's like, you're gross, you're racist, it's just terrible, it's disgusting. They just want to eat sandwiches. So <laughs> he just, and it's very ironic that he would get so upset over Sam and Bill having an opinion criticizing Islam basically when he did a whole movie criticizing Christianity. So that's sort of the sacred cow 
area that Islam is in that I found myself in when I started to say that I was an ex-Muslim. All of a sudden, I was spreading hate, and I was racist, and I was a bigot, and I was an Islamophobe. People that I had known for sometimes over 20 years, people that I went to high school with, were telling me that I was uh, an inauthentic voice because I had been jaded by Islam, so I'm being too aggressive. Um, and I'm like, you've known me all of these years, and I was never aggressive before, and I was never racist before, and now all of a sudden, I am. So, um, I believe that Islam should be up for ridicule, just like every other religion and ideology should be up for ridicule. Nobody has a problem with the ex-Scientologist, or ex-Mormon, or ex-Jehovah's Witness, or ex Westboro Baptist Church, you know, there's a, Megan Phelps is getting a TED Talk, Leah Remini is getting an A&E documentary, ex-Muslims get told that they're hateful and they get shut down. Um, Ayan Persielli was supposed to go to Australia just recently, and they had a huge campaign against her, and she got so many death threats that she had to cancel her trip. Uh, the same wouldn't... It wouldn't be the same if she was an ex any other religion. Uh, the knee-jerk reaction that happens is that people automatically say, you know, not all Nazis, or sorry, not all, <laughs> not all Muslims. But I was gonna, I was gonna actually compare that to when you start to talk about, you know, the Nazis killed Jews and in Germany, nobody says, well, not all the Nazis. You know, some Nazis were good dads and, you know, they also wanted to eat sandwiches. Nobody says that, right? Like, we understand that when we're talking about it, we're talking about it generally and we're talking about the people that are a problem. Um, the same thing, like, you know, nobody says not all communists. Nobody says not all Republicans. We can criticize ideologies no problem until it comes to Islam, then things are, things are totally different. And I think the reason for that is because we have trouble separating people from their ideology when it comes to Islam. So this problem doesn't really happen in any other situation for some reason. Um, so what we have here is people have rights, ideas don't have rights. So when we talk about Islam, we're not talking about Muslims necessarily. Again, there's 1.6 billion, I mean that number is probably wrong because of all the ex-Muslims that aren't allowed to speak up. But let's just say there's around a billion people that follow this religion. Obviously not all of them. But when we're talking about the religion, we can criticize the religion, we can talk about the problems in the religion without saying, oh, that means I want all Muslims to be killed or that without being racist or without being a bigot, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, some people are bigoted and racist, and that's anti-Muslim bigotry, and that's a real problem. But that's not the kind of work that Armin and I and a lot of ex-Muslim activists, that's not what we're doing, obviously. Um, so when we are unable to separate people from religion, then we end up with some confusing problems. Oh, speaking of confusing problems, there it is. 
So when we're unable to separate humans from their religion, things like this happen. So obviously humans above religion. Here we have Iran in 1979. These women are protesting the mandatory hijab. So you can, as far as the eye can see, you can see these women out in the streets yelling. And if you go on YouTube, you can watch a video of this happening. Screaming and yelling and up in the balconies are all filled with women as well saying, no, we don't want this. We don't want to wear, don't, for, don't tell us what to wear. We are against this in 1979. And then in the free country of the United States of America in 2017, we have a complete betrayal of these women. This here was so upsetting to so many people like me and to so many people in Saudi Arabia who are forced to wear hijab, and so many people in Iran and Somalia. I was in Canada and I was forced to wear hijab from the age of nine. So there's, it's no geographical borders. This is, this, is a, this is a religious thing. It's an idea. It goes across the planet. You know, there are tens of millions of Muslims in, in Russia and in Chechnya, it's like Muslim majority. People think that it's like a brown people religion. No, it's not. It's across the planet. Um, so this, this conflating of humans and religion causes a lot of problems. Because what's happening here is these women think that they're celebrating Muslim human beings, but they're not. They're celebrating Islam. They're celebrating the ideology that is oppressing these women. So that's why it's really important to understand the difference between the two, because then you end up supporting the wrong thing. So the next video I'm going to show you is Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was a president of Egypt. And this video is from the 50s. Um, and, well, I'll just let you watch it. It's up at the top, you can read the... على أن يسيروا في الطريق الصحيح والطريق السليم. ورجل المرشد العام للإقامة المسلمين وطلب طالب طلب إيه؟ أول حاجة قال لي يجب أن تقيم الحجاب وخلي كل واحدة تمشي الشارع تنفع. That's the reaction. Yes. Let him wear it, it says. It's mostly men. This is in Parliament, as Darwin mentioned.
انت مش قادر تلبس اذا كنت انت مش قادر تلبس بنت واحده اللي هي بنتك فرحه عايزني انا انزل البس 10 مليون طرح في البلد الناس <تصفيق> So that's in the 50s. And they laughed at it. Oh, that's just ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Oh, sorry. So basically, he was saying the Muslim Brotherhood went to him and they said, we need you to make sure that every woman in this country wears a hijab. And then he was like, and then everybody started laughing in the audience. They thought it was hilarious. And one guy yelled out, tell him to wear it. And then he basically told the story of like, your daughter goes to university and she's not even wearing a hijab and you want me to go and put it on 10 million women? So he's, he's against the idea. He says, obviously I can't tell people what to do in their own homes, it's their own business. But the Muslim Brotherhood was insisting to him, no, it's you're the leader of this country and, and you should force people to wear the hijab. Um, so that was just to show you how the humans reacted when the religion was being forced on them. Just like those of you who have tried on. Oh. It's, it's when we have two mics on. It's when we have two mics on. Oh, okay. Um, um, what was I saying? How humans reacted. Oh, right, 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 right. So how the humans react when you try to impose, impose religion on them. So the same thing in Iran, same thing in Egypt, same thing for me in Canada, same thing for those of you who have tried on the hijab, that's what I was going to say, yes. So for those of you who have tried on the hijab or tried on the niqab, and that being told you have to wear this when you don't want to wear it, any human is going to react in the exact same way that you would react if somebody told you to put something on against your will. Um, so, I wanted to talk a little bit about this humans versus religions thing because I think that that's a common issue. So, here you have a bunch of different women from a bunch of different cultures and what they used to wear before they were colonized by Islam and forced to start wearing the hijab or the niqab. My family is from Egypt and you're all familiar with ancient Egyptian civilization, right? And it would have been eradicated the same way the Buddhas in Afghanistan were bombed or were detonated with dynamite, the same way the statues in Syria were being um, bombed as well, the same, you know, in Iran and in Iraq and all over the world. The idea of Islam's plan, Muhammad's plan, was is to get rid of the current culture and replace it with Islam. It didn't work so well in Egypt because the Brits came in and they found the pyramids and they found the tombs and they found the Sphinx and they were like, stay away, we're going to protect this. So that's the only reason why we even know about ancient Egyptian culture today was because of the Brits. Um, the same is not true for a lot of these other countries that lost their cultures, replaced by Islam. When people start to say Islamic culture to me, it's like a trigger. <laughs> I get really upset because 
Islam is not a culture, it's a religion that tried to impose itself on top of our cultures. So Egyptians have, used to have their own language, now they just speak Arabic. Egypt was one of the first countries to be colonized by Islam. So, you know, Egyptians will even call themselves Arabs now, even though they're actually North Africans. Um, it, it's like this really slave mentality almost, where they've internalized their master's religion and culture and completely lost their own. So when we have conversations today about Islamic culture, it's just a testament to how good of a job Muhammad did by eradicating all of our cultures and replacing it with Islam. I want you all to please be aware that these are all human beings that are from hundreds of different countries and they all have a very rich and diverse culture that has nothing to do with Islam. It is, this time we can actually say nothing to do with Islam and it's true. <laughs> um, when you remove the religious, when you remove Islam from there, you'll find that there's a food, there's music, there's art, there's language, there's traditions, there's all of this stuff under there that is totally different from all of these, uh, that they're not all the same. But people tend to think of Muslims as this big monolith, this big one group, and as if they're all united and they're all working together. No, they actually, a lot of them hate each other. But, <laughs> but in a lot of ways, too, these cultures don't even interact. Like, um, if I were to meet somebody from, from Indonesia, for example, which is a Muslim-majority country, we don't share the same, For if I'm talking about my Egyptian background now, like we wouldn't share the same language, we wouldn't say, share the same traditions, we wouldn't share anything about our cultures are not the same at all. And I think when we compare it to other religions, like if I say, if you meet a Catholic from the Philippines, you wouldn't expect them to be anything like a, a Catholic person from Italy. Like obviously they're gonna have two completely different cultures. And it's the same for Muslims. So when you're celebrating or respecting or honoring Muslims, there's no such thing. What you're doing is you're respecting and honoring a religion. You're not respecting and honoring the people. So um, I just wanted to really talk about that because it's something that really makes me sad, especially after what happened in, in Egypt today. Egypt is almost 90% Muslim, and even the 10% of Christians that are left aren't good enough. You know, it's like, nope, got to get rid of them too. Even 90% not good enough. Um, and those 10% are the actual real Egyptians, or the only ones that weren't, that didn't take on the religion and the culture of their masters. So I wanted to show you two more short videos. I won't go through the whole thing, but this first one is a hashtag that if you're on Twitter, I hope you'll support this hashtag. It's stop enslaving Saudi women. Um, and this is just to show you how people on that side of the world are fighting really hard for their rights. Meanwhile, here in the West, we're like respecting their religion and honoring it and putting, you know, United States of America flag hijabs on and stuff. And this is this is how people are actually living on the other side of the world. Your work 
can you imagine being an adult woman and having to get permission from a male guardian, like your father, husband, or even your son, in order to do basic things like getting medical treatment or traveling abroad? That's the situation women face in Saudi Arabia. Women there are now calling for an end to male guardianship with a new social media system. I spoke with one of the activists who wishes to remain anonymous. I'll have to just pause it there, but if you're interested, um, just in YouTube, just put Stop Enslaving Saudi Women, and this should be the first video that comes up. Uh, the woman in the pink hijab. Now we got it. Go ahead. The woman in the pink hijab. Um, her name is Moody, and she's the, in the United States now. So she was given asylum. She did a BBC documentary, and then her life was in danger, so they got her out. Um, I had another short video there of women in Iran, um, and that was for the hashtag MyStealthyFreedom. And basically, I, I won't play the video for, for time's sake, but I hope that you'll check out that hashtag MyStealthyFreedom. So these are just women that are taking pictures of themselves without a hijab on. That's it. And then posting it on social media. And those pictures could get them fined, imprisoned, or even killed. And like I was mentioning before, we now find ourselves in this really unholy left-right alliance. So when I'm talking about all of these things that are happening in the Muslim world and things that happened to me, I'm talking about right-wing Muslims, obviously. These are conservative Muslims. Somebody like Linda Sarsour, who uh, praises Sharia law, that's about as far right as you could possibly get. So it's really crazy to find somebody who's that far right of a Muslim being celebrated and hailed as a hero by Bernie Sanders, who's like the most left-wing of all American leaders. Um, so we feel like there's like a betrayal from the, from the left-wing in the West. The, the liberals here, you'd think, would be supporting the liberals there, but unfortunately, that's not what's happening. It's the liberals are actually supporting the far right so it's, it's very confusing. In this march, they wouldn't even allow conservative Christians. They said, if you're pro-life, if you're a pro-life group, you're not allowed. Meanwhile, they invited CARE, and they invite somebody, who, not just invited somebody who supports Sharia law, she was one of the co-chairs. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a complete. CARE is. The Council of American. Islamic relations. Islamic relations, thank you. So uh, in a nutshell, we celebrate the hijab by putting a Nike swoosh on it, but we wouldn't celebrate you know, Mormon underwear or Amish clothing by putting a Nike swoosh on it. <laughs> that's exactly how I feel when I see a hijab with a Nike swoosh. That's exactly how I feel. This is far right just as much as these are far right, actually way more, way more far right than these guys. Um, I think the confusion is that it's sort of, it's flipped. So in, in Canada and America, probably most people believe are, are liberal and very, you know, fringe minority are the conservative far right. But in the Muslim world, that's generally flipped. 
So most people are conservative, what we would consider far right, and a few fringe minority are risking their lives to be liberal and to speak out and to be honest about the fact that they believe in liberal values. So you'd, you'd think that that little group there would get the support from liberals over here. But no, there's a confusion and instead we're supporting the far right. So this was just a, this was made by um, Mohammed Sayed, who is the president of the Ex-Muslims of North America, which is a group that is made uh, to support ex-Muslims because it's an, it's an anonymous group and Mohammed goes through a lot of trouble to vet all of the members to make sure that it's safe for them. It's sort of like an Alcoholics Anonymous for ex-Muslims just to get together and talk about all of the traumas that we've been through and to support each other. So Muhammad made this to compare Trump to Prophet Muhammad. And this is somebody that everybody recognizes as, oh my gosh, he's like, he's a Republican, he's right wing, he's, you know, he's crazy pants. But this guy, we love him, we have to respect and honor him, right? So it's quite, it, when you take a look at it and you think, if you think Trump is, if you think Trump is right wing, so what is this guy? Like super far alt-right, like way more right-wing than Trump could ever possibly be. So, um, <laughs> my main message to you today is to please ask you to treat all religions with equal contempt. Um, if we're going to undermine Christians from bringing the Lord's Prayer into our secular public schools, let's respond with equal vigilance when Muslims want to have Islamic prayers in our secular public schools. For one group, we say absolutely not, and we're very loud about that, and for another group, we're like, mm, you know, this is Canada and people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. So that's not treating all of them with equal contempt. And so I hope that we'll remain just as vigilant and just as strong and just as outraged over all of these religions. In Canada specifically, we have, I talked about the unholy left-right alliance, um, but we have that very, Canadians are like the nicest people on the planet, right? We, we know this. Like, so we're always very careful this is Ali called it the Islamophobia phobia. Everybody's so afraid to be called Islamophobic that they, that they keep quiet. Even when people are talking about things that we totally disagree with and that we do not want those kinds of ideas uh, in our, we don't want to agree with them, they're completely against our values, but we won't say anything because we don't want to offend anybody. So what's happened now, you might have heard of the Motion 103 that just got passed recently. Myself and a lot of other ex-Muslims were very concerned about the word Islamophobia in this motion. And I know that it's just a motion right now, and if it just stays there, we're good. But the problem is that it is very likely that things will continue to push, just like they continue to push in Egypt, just like they continue to push in Iran, just like they continue to push in the UK, where it now has over 80 courts with Sharia law in them. You know, when somebody comes and bullies you and you give them your lunch money, the next day they're not gonna just ignore you, right? It's gonna keep going. 
so the, our biggest problem with M103 was the term Islamophobia, because the term means basically an irrational fear of Islam, Islamophobia. Islam calls for my death because I'm an ex-Muslim. Islam calls for your death and your death and your death and the death of all of you in this room, the death of most Muslims, or sorry, <laughs> most Canadians. So it's not irrational for us to fear an ideology that wants, that calls for our death. <clears throat> what they were trying to express was anti-Muslim bigotry, so bigotry against Muslims. That we would be totally behind. But when you call it Islamophobia, that is stirring up what I was talking about, Raif Badawi and the Bangladeshi bloggers and in Pakistan and all of these people in all of these countries that are not allowed to speak out against Islam. So people like Armin and I do speak out against Islam because we are in a secular free country. And now we're being told in our free country that we also can't criticize Islam. So who's left? Who's ever going to criticize Islam? I mean, Muhammad must be so happy and proud right now that 1,400 years later, his decree that nobody criticizes Islam is working across the whole planet. Over there, it's blasphemy laws, and over here, we just self-imposed blasphemy laws, right? We shut each other up by yelling Islamophobia or by passing these motions. So I really, this is one video that I do want to show you. Uh, this is a girl who was protesting against M103. This girl is from Pakistan and she's Muslim and she's wearing a hijab or she's wearing a niqab, not because she wants to or because it's for religious purposes, but it's to, for safety. Because if she's seen speaking out against this motion, then she's putting her own life at risk from the Muslim community and then probably also from far lefters as well that are calling her a Nazi and a racist and everything else. We can play that, please.
and we want to celebrate the beauty and the value of this country. And we don't want that horrible, horrible, draconian law to follow us here, sorry. What, what can they possibly say to you when you point out, listen, I'm originally from Pakistan, I've seen the dark side of Korea, um, why, why are you campaigning against people that are standing up for green movement? Well, when they call me fascist and they call me a white supremacist, I tell them- Call you a white supremacist. You're a white supremacist. After I was here, they're calling me a Nazi scum and a white supremacist. And I'm like, I'm not, how can I be racist against my own people? And they say, it doesn't matter, you still are. And I want to say to them that I'm standing up for my women, my sisters that have died, my sisters that are in jail, the Sophia girls. They were Afghani Muslims and they were killed because their parents thought they were too Westernized. Canada is a beautiful country. I was born in Canada. I went back to Pakistan many times. My parents are from there. My family still lives there. And my family, uh, it's just a horrible thing. Um, they don't understand. They'll never understand until they live there. They wouldn't even last one day under Korea law. So that's how Muslims are reacting to M103. Not just her, lots of Muslims are reacting that way to M103. But of course, when they, oh, sorry. When they react that way, when they react that way to M103, as you saw, she had to put the niqab on because they are putting their, their lives in danger. Um, but it's important to note that most Muslims are like her and they want, they have, they're in Canada because they love Canadian values and they want to be living here and they want to be living under our values, not the values of the countries that they ran away from. Um, but there are the right-wing conservative Muslims like the family that I grew up in, they are the ones that are pushing for M103. They are the ones that are pushing for the prayers in the secular public schools. And just like we wouldn't turn a blind eye to right-wing Christians pushing for these things, we also should not turn a blind eye to right-wing Muslims pushing for these things. So um, just as a final note, my call to action for you is to please be an ally and to speak out for liberals all over the planet. Do not be scared when people try to use slurs like racist and bigot and Islamophobe against you. Um, you know, people like Armin and I know what it feels like to be in the receiving end. In fact, we're risking our lives by speaking out. So I ask you to please have those uncomfortable conversations and the more uncomfortable conversations you have, the more we can spread this word and the more we can support liberals and support human beings across the planet. Thank you.